Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Pollution of Cowardice, South Jersey in the Civil War. I am your host, Dan Casella, and today I'm going to read you an account about the Battle of Gettysburg, which can be found in the book Campfire Sketches and Battlefield Echoes, which was originally published in 1888. This post-war account comes from Lieutenant Charles E. Troutman, who served in Company G of the 12th New Jersey Volunteers. He will enlist on August 16th of 1862 and will serve with the regiment until February of 1864. So without further ado, here is Lieutenant Charles Troutman's account of the Battle of Gettysburg. On the morning of July 1, the 3rd Division, 2nd Corps, moved along the Taneytown Road and filed into a field and awaited developments. About 1 or 2 o'clock that afternoon, the sound of artillery told us that our distant front had found the head of the bold invader. At sunset, we were met by dismantled artillery, wounded men, and ambulances slowly winding up the rear with the dying. Upon each ambulance and each cap was seen a full or crescent moon, showing that the 1st and 11th Corps had been at it. About dark, we filed into a meadow near Rock Creek, just in the rear of Roundtop. All was excitement. The battle had gone against us. Reynolds was dead, and thus night fell into the evening of the first day. At dawn, we moved up the Tawny Town Road past General Meade's headquarters, a two-roomed farmhouse with sunflowers near the doorstep. Marching on, we went up a gentle rise in the rear of an orchard, on the crest overlooking the valley, the western edge of which was bounded by Seminary Ridge. There we remained during the long summer's morning, smoking and chatting, congesturing as to the probable results of our next move. Two batteries were exchanging compliments with those of the enemy, whose shells plunged and tore up sod around us. Toward evening, a body of North Carolina sharpshooters ensconced themselves in a house and barn midway between the lines and rendered it unsafe to work the batteries on our right and left front. A battalion of the regiment to which I was attached was ordered to dislodge them, so down the slope we went, Colonel Thomas A. Smith commanding the brigade, leading the way until the Emmitsburg Road was reached. Three cheers were given. A man fell dead for every cheer. Nothing daunted the battalion dashed over the intervening space of 500 yards to where the enemy was concealed. Every mini that left the barn was distinctly heard from the muzzle of the rifle until it struck something. The captain of one of the companies running beside the writer was struck just above the right eye. It was zip, zip, all the way across the meadow. Over the fence we went, through the barnyard knee-deep in manure, but not an enemy was to be seen. A constant shuffling above us told us that the foe was still in possession, but so were we. It was certain death to charge up the ladder to the loft above, but at last a venturesome youth, whose curiosity exceeded his fear, climbed the ladder until his eyes were above the level of the upper floor. The sight satisfied him, for with a shout he loosened his hold and came down among us, accompanied by three Confederates, who in making a dash at him had fallen through. I do not know how it happened, but this fortunate capture seemed to be the signal for the surrender of the whole force above. A detail of ten or fifteen men was then ordered to charge the house, and we were convinced there was a body of sharpshooters there too. We ran through the garden, through lilac, rose, and raspberry bushes. The berries on the ladder were temptedly hanging, but there was more serious business. A rattling, splitting sound, and the picket fence was down, and the remnant of us dashed into the kitchen door where twelve men were captured. After capturing one more man, 
discovered in an old-fashioned cupboard, we heard the sound of the recall and ran back over the meadow under a live archway of shells. Early the next morning, the barn and house were burned by a detachment of the 14th Connecticut under the orders of Colonel Smith. The division was moved to the front, its left resting on Arnold's 1st Rhode Island Battery, its right on the left of the 1st Corps that occupied the cemetery. The 71st and 72nd Pennsylvania had its right resting on the battery, leaving an interval between our extreme left and the 2nd Division for the battery to play through. The right of the regiment to which I was attached rested on a small, on a small house and barn, which was used as the headquarters of General Hayes, our division commander. In, in front was a low stone wall. The ground sloped gradually from about 15 yards in our rear to the Emmitsburg Pike, when the valley was apparently level for about 600 yards. Then there was a gradual rise until it reached Seminary Ridge, top of which was crowned with a dense woody growth. Between us and the ridge were fields of ripening wheat and clover and growing corn with fences intact, presenting such a picture as would delight the soul of an artist. The morning of the third was quiet and ominously so. Occasionally the sharp sputter of the skirmish fire would arouse our interest we conversed in little groups, wandered about, or sat under the shade for the day got to be excessively hot. At 12.30, coffee was put to boiling, pipes were lighted, and the men were preparing to while away the afternoon as best they could. Just then, off to the enemy's left, a gun was heard. A second or two of anxious suspense followed, and immediately over our heads, close enough to feel the rush of air, flew a screaming shell. There was a chance to count to five slowly, when about opposite round top, came to a boom, and the earth began to shake. Away went coffee pots, haversacks, pipes, everything, and men flattened themselves against Mother Earth. 128 guns opened their black throats all along Seminary Ridge and hurled murder and sudden death at us. The hills fairly rocked and trembled. The air was filled with hurling, hissing, whizzing, rattling projectiles. It seemed as if nothing could stand a fire, aye, that the very soil itself would be swept from the crest. Orderlies dashed through the orchards to headquarters, crouching low over the saddle with shoulders drawn up like men caught in a sudden hailstorm. Amid the unearthly clangor, and above all could be heard the clear voice of the commanding officer of an artillery battery to our left, unconcernedly giving his orders. The storm continued until about 4 p.m. when the slackened fire beckoned the approach of the terrible infantry lines. The smoke of the opposing guns had settled low in the valley, and our division was in a hush of expectancy. Then the sputtering fire along the skirmish line told us of an infantry advance. A gentle breeze rolled away the curtain and opened our view to a magnificent array. Pickett's Virginians and Pettigrew's North Carolinians were moving over an intervening valley in two compact lines of battle. Hayes rode down the line sternly, biting every man to keep hidden from view. One man in his eagerness to watch the approach of the enemy rose to his feet. Lie down, Hayes roared. Lie down like that man, pointing to a figure at his feet. That man is dead, General. I wish you were. Be quiet. Then turning to his orderly of the division color bearer, he spoke. Orderly, when we are attacked, I expect to ride where danger is the thickest. Do you think you will keep up the flag even if I ride to hell? Touching his cap visor. With pleasure, said the orderly. General, if you reach hell, just look out the window and you'll see the little blue trifoil fluttering behind you. On came the enemy, pecked by the little skirmish line retreating before it. 
The bugle now sounded the recall and the skirmishers came dashing to our lines. Then Arnold's and other batteries opened with grape and canister upon the advancing line. Men were literally blown into the air, but the gaps were closed. No hurry, no wavering, but steadily moving onward and the movement eliciting an admiration from those who were about to soon mow them down. When thirty yards distant, the general officers rode up and down the ranks, exhorting and inspiring our men. With a roar and yell, the enemy now rushed towards our position. Fences disappeared as if of pasteboard. There was a silence in our division until the first line was just lapping the Emmitsburg Road when they heard the order, Fire! A sheet of flame, a clash of musketry, and the first line melted. On came the second, not in line, but in isolated groups intent upon reaching the crest. The shouts of combatants, surging lines, and the roar of artillery made a picture that cannot be imagined, much less described. Color Sergeant Cheeseman of Camden, New Jersey, at this supreme moment leaped over the stone wall, run hurriedly almost to the Emmitsburg Pike, and with a fearful blow of his fist felled the color bearer of one of the enemy's regiments, grasped his flag, and gaily trotted back to our lines, waving it over his head, and this amid heavy musketry fire on both lines. Brave fellow! He sleeps in the wilderness. Mortals could not stand the terrific fire swept that valley. Pettigrew broke and ran, and the line crumbled and gave way. Pickett's division swept on and had hand-to-hand -hand conflict with the 71st and 72nd regiments of the 2nd Division, and then went reeling back over the valley into the woods from where they had so buoyantly and gallantly emerged. Lieutenant Troutman will finish his service uh, in February 4th of 1864 due to disability. He will somehow find his way out to Johnson City, Tennessee after the war, and in 1922 he will pass away at the age of 78. He is buried, however, in Arlington National Cemetery along with his wife, Julia. Thank you very much for coming and listening to this episode of No Pollution of Cowardice. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find me on Facebook, No Pollution of Cowardice, South Jersey in the Civil War. Um, again, I hope you enjoyed this.